This is Day Beautiful, a podcast that helps readers discover debut authors through in-depth conversations about books, culture, and life. To discover more debut authors, please visit daybeautiful.net and follow Day Beautiful on all social medias at Day Beautiful. Today's guest is a writer that is originally from Texas, but now lives in New York City. He has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Pacific Standard, and so many other places. His debut novel is this amazing mix of noir, supernatural, thriller, and it, it leans into detective tropes in a way that is so fresh and, 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 and just exciting to read. The book is called The Brightlands. It's available now via Hanover Square Press. His name is John Fram. Thank you so much, John, for joining me today. How's everything going? It's going really well. You know, um, New York is hot, but I'm mm-hmm. indoors, so not much to complain about. Yeah, and um, your book's coming out right at the, the height of summer, um, right after 4th of July weekends. Uh, what? <laughs> yes. That's, it's, it's, a, it's interesting because I feel like normally maybe summer isn't the best time to release a book. I don't know. I'm not like a book person on that side of things, but now I feel like everyone's staying at home, so this is like the perfect time to uh, release a book. You know, it's actually funny. Um, a lot of big reads are, are come out in the summer because, you know, people often take holidays and they are always looking for stuff to read. So being a summer title period was actually, you know, at first it was kind of uh, nerve wracking because I kind of, you're competing with a lot of like really big titles. So at first I was kind of nervous about it, but it's grown, you know, the, the book seems to be connecting with a lot of people and you're right. Like, vacation or not everybody's at home so the the support for books lately has been really exciting you know what i guess you're right i guess like all like the big blockbuster books especially are released during the summer i take back everything i said earlier it was completely wrong i mean that publishing is weird publishing is weird like that it's typically but yeah it's typically summer and then like holiday season you'll you'll usually notice a lot of the the big dog pet books coming out around that time Mm -hmm. and your book the bright lands like I said, it come, by the time this podcast is out, the book will be out, but um, it's it's coming out right at the peak of summer. Tell us a little bit about Brightlands. Yeah, so um, it's a, you know, I, I sort of jokingly describe it as, as like a, a spooky queer thriller. It's, um, it's set in a, a small town called Bentley uh, in central Texas where there's really nothing going on. And uh, the main character is a guy named Joel. He left Bentley uh, when he was 18 under sort of a cloud of suspicion. There was a bit of a scandal. And he's really made a successful life for himself in in Manhattan. And one evening, he gets a text from his brother, Dylan, who is a, you know, sort of everything that Bentley wants a guy to be. Like, he's handsome, and he's tall, and he's very masculine, and he's got this beautiful girlfriend, and he's on the football team, and he's the star quarterback uh, of this sort of this failing town has one thing it's football so dylan uh joel's brother is this very prominent figure and under clearly under a great deal of pressure and dylan just starts to say some things in these text messages that makes joel afraid that things maybe aren't so perfect for him so he joel goes back to bentley 
intending to try to maybe help him. And pretty soon, uh, Dylan disappears. So Joel starts to sort of pull on this thread to figure out what's going on. And there's a lot of characters all searching for Dylan, um, but everybody kind of has a secret. And Joel reconnects with people from his past who have grown or not grown. And he just winds up realizing that this goes, this one missing football player has sort of triggered this huge wave of, of, of issues. And it, it's a very deep problem that their town has. And, you know, it's one of those things where we're growing up in a small town. I feel like it's, it's easy. Like for me, I always felt like there was something dangerous afoot. Like I wasn't really welcome there. And, and I think Joel discovers that that's very much the case and that things are even worse than he thought. Yeah. And there's a lot of, that I definitely want to unpack in Brightlands, but I did want to offer readers a chance to hear you read from it. Um, what would you be reading for us today? Right. So this can be a really short little bit from basically right as Joel is coming back into town. So this is right at the beginning of the book. He's just gotten those messages um, and he's, he's arriving uh, in Texas again. So five days later, his plane pierced the cloud bank, and great squares of Texas prairie rose up to swallow him. Watching the flatland take shape at his window, he felt a familiar anxiety wind its fingers around his throat. His brother was not the first troubled football player to confide in Joel. If he could stab a finger in his blighted hometown's eye, so much the better. He chewed an Adderall and texted his brother. An ugly thunderhead was rolling in from the gulf, when the Enterprise attendant led Joel to the parking lot to collect his rental, a low-flung convertible with a gleaming black hood, the twilight air felt ready to burst. One sniff, and Joel knew he was back. There was nothing quite like the smell of Texas and the hours before some fresh calamity. The open convertible tore away from the encroaching storm with a moan. Joel passed names, passed through towns with names like Thrall and Spree and Thorndale and wove around trucks and horse trailers, their drivers and passengers all regarding him and the pop music blaring from his speakers with a courteous suspicion. There were fewer cows than he remembered. Great miles of scrubby flatland unrolled to either side of the highway, punctuated only by a lonely water tower, a totemic bale of hay, a sunken barn with half the country visible through a hole in its side. Bentley, 18 miles. Joel didn't smoke, and yet he craved a cigarette. He caught a casual crackle of gunfire somewhere in the distance. There was a sound he'd forgotten, and slowed to allow a rusted Chevy to merge ahead of him. Something caught his eye in the truck's bed. A hulking stuffed bison wobbled on stiff legs. A letterman jacket fastened around its furry shoulders, its black glass eyes catching the last of the sunlight through the grill of a green Bentley football helmet. It was a challenge not to stare into those eyes. With a queasy flutter in his stomach, a creep of goose flesh up his arms, Joel suddenly felt he'd seen those eyes before, though he was also certain he'd never seen this stuffed bison in his life. He had the strangest conviction, almost like deja vu, that those black eyes had watched him on a very bad night a very long time ago. They had watched him then, just like they were watching him now, with a hungry, inhuman intelligence, like a lizard waiting for a fly to buzz just a few inches closer. Jesus, Joel thought. He wasn't even home, and already he was jumping at taxidermy. He caught sight of the first sign of fresh paint from Boston. 
a billboard that read, My Herd, My Glory appeared, listing the names and numbers of every player on the team. He strained to spot his brother, though he needn't have bothered, just past Bentley, two miles. His brother's face rose up from the field. Dylan Whitley, senior, the sign read, The boy with the million-dollar arm. The convertible speaker sputtered, the music playing from Joel's phone cut out. Bentley took shape on the flat horizon. As the truck ahead of him rumbled toward town, a dark light rose in the bison's dead eyes. Joel jumped. He would have sworn he'd just seen the thing blink. As if in reply, the cold voice seemed to whisper through the static of the convertible speakers. I missed you. And that's it. One thing I loved about... Thank you for reading so much. One thing I loved about this was it's it's pacing. It's so like bingeable. I know we don't really talk about books as a bingeable mm. thing. It's usually Netflix, but I it's it's something that like a, a page turner, I guess is the traditional term. I could not stop right. reading it. Um god, I, I can't believe I just called a book bingeable and not a page turner. Um but I mean honestly, I wrote it very much like yeah, I think we're we're in we're in like a post bingeable you know, it's it's Netflix and, and HBO have taught us such really compelling forms of of narratives, so I think that's a completely apt description of a. a I feel like they're analogous. Page turning and bingeable, I think, is a perfectly fine uh, yeah. appellation. When you set out to write Brightlands, and we'll talk about like the genesis and everything, but like, did you did you know you were going to write a fast paced book? Was that always something you wanted to do? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I grew up reading thrillers. You know, like, that was what my family, like, always, like, um, you know, we were a very religious household, but also, like, we had very deep reverence for, like, Patricia Cornwell and stuff. So it was always understood that suspense was um, something to be desired, like, it was something really beautiful um, and and special if a writer could get hold of you. So for me, yeah, it... You know, I think when you're when you're really young and trying to write books, especially if you feel like you're trying to impress somebody, maybe you you look down your nose at suspense. But I'm very grateful that pretty early on, I was like, you know what, this is actually it. You can do so much in 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 a thriller that you may as well you can say plenty about people and about society. You know, why not also make it entertaining? No, exactly. And and, and going back to how you grew up in a religious household but suspense and thrillers were a thing that that's it made me think of my mom we i grew up in a pretty fairly catholic household and she loved mary mm-hmm. higgins clark and and loves yeah you know like and and i think one of my first books i remember in elementary school we had to do a book report and i did it on a mary higgins clark book and i think my teacher was like what the heck are you reading this book for? yeah what are you doing reading it's funny, Mary Higgins Clark, when I was like 12, I was reading a lot of her stuff. And I was going through a period of my, my life where I was actually really, it was a pretty sickly kid. So I was reading a lot. And then somehow it sort of dawned on me. I think a teacher might have said something kind of snide because I'd missed a lot of class. And they're like, oh, you need to get over this, this sickness because you'll never be able to hold down a job. And I remember reading like a Mary Higgins Clark book and like flipping to the back and seeing her like done up in like furs and jewels and being like, I guess I'll be a writer because she seems to be doing okay. <laughs> and like that's what basically what started me off. I was like, I'll just be a Mary Higgins Clark, not realizing <laughs> oh, that's all the that bad fail. But I mean, I, oh yeah, I owe her. I owe her a lot. She she has a book called Remember Me that's pretty much mm-hmm. perfect. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. a gold standard of of just perfectly balanced 
Uh, but yeah, she's amazing. So like, growing up, was I mean, Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, was suspense your genre of choice? Yeah, it totally was. Um, I, you know, I was never super into, I wasn't as into Cornwell as my mom was, um, but I really loved um, Ruth Rendell, Ruth, or Ruth Rendell, however the British say it. Because um, Rendell wrote these procedurals um, under her own name about this detective Wexford. And those are fine. Like, I never really cared about the procedural form that much. Like, it didn't really get me going. But she she created, I mean, arguably you can draw a direct line from, from Rendell to Gone Girl because she wrote these books under an open pen name called Barbara Vine, where she basically, they're not really mysteries. They're just sort of narrators introducing you. They're often first person and you're sort of listening to this person tell a story and recall the past that you start to realize that maybe they're hiding something from you. And maybe there's, there's pieces of this that aren't, becoming that, that things are far more complicated than than you've been led to believe and they often are dealing with like crimes from the past and the the effect on the present so like that sort of thing was like catnip for me i mean that was really when the lightning bolt hit was reading her and seeing how much you could pack into you know a 300 page suspense novel and i think just looking at how suspense and thrillers have morphed from those procedurals to those more experimental but now we're in this like post literary thriller genre where mm. you like you said you can do so much you can i don't think people look for suspense and thrillers for social commentary but i feel like every good thriller i've read recently and yours included talks about what it's like to be a certain type of person in a certain type of place yeah i think that you know i um i feel like my book is very different from from gone girl and i definitely <laughs> set out to not write another, you know, girl thriller, you know, like, I think that the, the profound thing about Gone Girl and the reason it created a whole genre is because it, it, A, has a really keen understanding of class, but also it has so much to say. Like, its twist is not just, you know, a magic trick of like, oh, I bet you didn't see that coming. It's telling you something very profound and very scary about society and women, right? So I think that she, like Gillian Flynn gave me the courage to try to do something where in a very different way, asking questions about queer men and America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when you, when you set out to write your book, what was the initial, the initial hook, the initial visual that grabbed you to create Brightlands? Mm. Oh, it would be a spoiler. Um, I saw, I saw the, um, well, there was, I mean, Texas is so huge, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's so eerie um, to be out in Texas at night. And if you're just driving through the middle of nowhere and you see some lights on the horizon, I remember when I was younger, uh, I was driving through, uh, I don't remember where I was going, but I saw some light out in the horizon. It looked like a little town, but I was like, there's nobody out there. There's nothing out there. What are all these lights doing out there on the horizon? And you know, I, it scared the, the Jesus out of me for some reason. Like, it always struck me as really unnerving. And um, so pretty quickly, you know, when I set out, when I knew I wanted to write a book about Texas and a book about, specifically about football and about someone from the outside having to return, I just, I, that image came back to me. And pretty quickly, I saw what was going on there. And I was like, oh, that's a book. I, I can do something with that. 
just when you were talking about driving in the, at night in Texas, I moved from Pennsylvania to Arizona as a child, and I remember this is mm. one of the v- big images that stuck with me. We were in like the panhandle of Texas, just going like trying to cut across to New Mexico, and there was like a giant mm-hmm. 100 foot bright lit up cross just in the middle of yeah. nowhere. It seems. <laughs> And I thought, yeah. what is that doing there? And I'm sure there was like a town just on the other side of like the prairie or whatever, but I, that's it was just there. And yeah, Texas does magical things. I think it gets a bad rap for specific reasons, but there's these nooks and crannies that are different worlds than what the rest of America thinks of Texas being about. Yeah, and that was definitely a goal for, for this book is I wanted to show like, there is complexity, you know what I mean? And it's never, it was a huge goal when I created this town of Bentley. I never wanted it to be um, just this sort of cliche place full of like one note bigots. Cause that was never my experience. I think that what's really spooky about Texas in my experience is you would meet these folks who are incredibly kind and incredibly generous. And then out of nowhere, you would sort of hit this blind spot where you realize that, you know, someone will just casually mention how they wish black and white people wouldn't get married together or something like, and it just really like, it jumps out at you. And you're like, this is, it, it starts to feel increasingly alien the further you're distant from it because there's so much to love. And yet underneath it all, you just keep sort of tripping on these weird wires of like assumptions and, and modes of thought that, that are really foreign to me now that I've lived on the East coast for so long. Mm-hmm being the idea of being an outsider in Texas, um, especially like in a football town, I know every town in Texas is a football town, but I guess, is that something that you've always written about or thought about from a kind of, yeah, go on. Sorry. From like a novelist. No, 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 you're fine. Um, I, I think what's interesting about Texas is like, or about like the outsider in Texas is the, the the noir genre really does depend on someone poking around asking questions, right? So just on a basic, basic technical level, you do need at least one outsider who can challenge the assumptions that the insiders have sort of taken for granted, um, you know, and start asking questions even when, you know, people tell him they shouldn't ask about something or, or they would just know that they should leave something alone. Um, but what really interested me about Joel was what, kind of like I just said, like this experience of going back to Texas, especially to rural Texas, um, it's really, really strange because it just never seems to change. You know what I mean? Like living in, I live in Manhattan now and it's like there's, you turn around and there's a new building or a new block and stuff is always sort of getting ripped down and replaced. And it's very eerie to go back to Texas and drive through and realize, oh my God, like they added a lane on the highway. Like that's it. <laughs> like everything is the same. Like people are still living and thinking and talking just the same as they were, you know, when I was growing up there 10 years ago. So it's, it's the outsider coming back. I was just as interested on the technical level of what I needed for the plot as I was in the theme of like, how do you respond to somewhere that doesn't change? Do- do you remember the first time you went back and I mean, obviously it mm. seems like very little change, but what was your first like personal instinct when you saw how, how little things changed in your hometown? 
Oh, wow. I mean, it was funny because, so I grew up in Waco, which looks like a big city, but it's very small. And it's also super segregated. So it's actually like your actual social circle is very tiny. Um, so it, it was a really weird place to grow up. And then, yeah, I left there when I was 22. I moved to Austin, Texas, and was there for a couple of years. And even that feels like the present. Like Austin has its own problems, but to its credit, like it does feel somewhat cosmopolitan. It is, you know, people are watching, and people are watching good TV and eating good food, and they read the paper. You know, it feels like today. And then uh, I remember probably uh, I I had moved to Austin. I was very poor, and I had had to like sell my car, and just I was really sort of living in straightened time. So it took me a while to actually save up the money to go back and visit my family. And I went by bus. And I'll never forget when the bus sort of took the highway exit. I'd probably been out of town. I probably hadn't been back to Waco in a year. I remember when the bus sort of pulled up the highway exit. It was like my body felt something. It was very uncanny because I was like reading a book. I wasn't really paying attention to the road. But I knew the second we slowed down, it was like my body knew that we were there and it was really uncanny. It was just like, I broke out in a cold sweat and it was very, it was very spooky, you know, because I don't think it, it's tricky because on the one hand, you don't want to be a martyr, but on the other hand, when you're a gay man, you are absorbing quite a bit of trauma that you're not even paying attention to. And to go back to a site of that, your body remembers it, you know? So that was what was really uncanny was going back. And then when my brain kicked in, it was just this sort of, feeling not of disgust but just sort of like distant despair like things if anything had changed it was just that more stuff was falling into disuse like it's um waco's economy at the time was really shrinking and so it was just there were a lot of houses going up for sale and like there were like rust stains on the for sale signs you could tell they'd been on the market for forever and like just everything was like peeling paint and the roads are always cracked and it was I saw a lot of stuff that maybe had always been there, but when you're away from it for a while, you come back and you're like, have there always been like these weird empty sidewalks with nobody on them? <laughs> like it just, it was, it was very, yeah, it was very odd. And then when you go back with friends and family, do they, I mean, cause I, yeah, do they, do they sense it or are they just oblivious to, to that like lack of change and like, deprecation of well one could argue yeah. that they like oh <laughs> yeah okay like yeah yeah i mean i i think for my parents they are you know they're earning a living out there still um i it, it's interesting um i it definitely it, it's it's a mindset of uh I, I think for a lot of people it's quite comforting to live in a place that doesn't change um when so much of the Obama era, especially in the South, like President Obama, was read as a period of intense tumult. So I think that people in these sort of this, at least my smaller society, um, they really loved this feeling of nothing changing because it meant that they didn't have to question things and it means you don't have to interrogate power structures and your role within those power structures. So it's a very comforting place to be. Um, and oh my God, it's just, 
there's no there's no talking around it. You know what I mean? Like my parents will be in Waco for the rest of their lives, and they're lovely people. They really are. But it's just it's always going to be uncanny to go back and realize like, oh, this is like a feature, not a bug. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then obviously Bentley is a fictional town, but when you're when you're creating it and you're creating Joel who you know, was had left and is coming back. But then there's also characters like Dylan and and the detectives and the, all the locals. What was it like writing those people for you who obviously had different points of view? And and like you said, it's kind of scarring going back as a queer man who who had not not ish, like troubles because of those type of people. Um, you mean what was it like? to write like to try to get into their heads um well one thing that was really interesting that i found was that by situating a narrative on a queer hero you automatically bring it by basically taking somebody who would have been a sidekick and and front and centering them and and making them the driver not just of not just some peripheral character but like really driving all the action what was interesting about that was it allowed me to then sort of open the story out and like expand the house, so to speak. So I could take in outsiders and weirdos. So, you know, you've got, um, the, the, there's basically like the second protagonist is a, is a detective named Starsha Clark and she's, um, Joel's only girlfriend. <laughs> like they dated in high school basically. And, um, she, left very briefly but she's mostly been back in Bentley all this time and now she's a sheriff's deputy and it's she is an oddity she's a female cop they don't have those in Bentley even still that's like an oddity um and then you've also got um Jamal Reynolds who's the uh, backup quarterback and he's never been allowed to play because you know he's friends with Dylan but Dylan is always getting the star power and also you know Jamal is black in this town and he's maybe kind of understanding that you there's certain things you don't ask for there's certain amount of respect you can't expect and these characters are just sort of operating in this mode and there's a couple other people who all in one way or another are outsiders trying to leverage their way into the center of things or burn it down and so i i think for me like it would have been very challenging to write from the perspective of um some of the folks who are in trying to preserve all of this, like there's a way to make that compelling. And I, I definitely have sympathy for all my villains because there's definitely characters who are trying to just stop, you know, they're just trying to keep things from changing. And it's, it's interesting. It was interesting to write them sympathetically, but I think I would have struggled. There's a way to do it, but it's very hard. I think to get a modern reader to root for someone trying to like preserve the status quo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's and that's one thing I I really liked about Brightlands. It's just I I think I read like a blurb somewhere where it was like a supernatural Friday Night Lights that just spins not out of control but spins into something different. And 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 these characters felt so real. And then I honestly believed where am i trying to go with this i just enjoyed to see like the especially between um joel and starsha just the Mm. their dynamic um and so i guess what i'm trying to get at as i'm stumbling through this is just like how did you avoid 
tropes of a traditional noir. I know the characters are vastly different than a traditional noir, but there's always the outsider and then maybe the detective who's searching things. But these two felt very original and not stale at all. Well, thank you. Um, I, I think for me, I mean, part of it was just trying to respect that they were going to have flaws. You know what I mean? I think that there's a really, just on a purely technical level, that was one trick that I learned and just, trying to maintain this huge cast of characters when I was writing it was because this book just kept growing. Like it was really like just a weed. It just kept going and going and it took a long time to tone it down and, and, and you know, thin it out. But one thing that was helpful to keep everybody straight and keep their motivation straight was to sort of just, you know, you, you figure out what are their, their dominant flaws and what are their needs or their wants? Like what are they trying to achieve in all this? Uh, and I think once you can get that figured out, you're most of the way there. Because it's very challenging, I think, that if you look at people in your day-to-day life, it's easy to see the flaws. It's hard to see their needs, typically. You know what I mean? And I, I think that that's something where, for this book, it was then a huge pleasure to take a character like um, like Dylan's girlfriend, uh, Bethany, is this glamorous, you know, blonde darling, a cheerleader, and I was like, okay, you've got like the mean girl cheerleader and there's a lot of fun in that trope. Like part of it's just having your cake and eating it too. Cause you're like, how can I get all the fun out of this character, but then deepen her and give her some nuance. So, you know, you look at a character like that and you say, well, what are her flaws? And it's like, well, she's pretty cocky and she's pretty, you know, sure of herself. And she definitely makes assumptions about people that maybe a bit precipitously. But then you're like, well, what does she need? And it's like, she needs acceptance. She needs to belong. And then you say, okay, let's, you know, you put her in the pot with all the other people and just kind of start turning up the heat. And pretty soon, if you trust in your characters and you have a good sort of danger driving them, like you have a good goal that they're all driving toward, you're, you're going to find that they they take on a lot of flesh and bone and just, you know, that, that was just like the candy. Like so much of the hard work of this book was literally just setting it all up. And then once it got moving, it was just like, you know, I'm just watching, eating popcorn and watching it play out. It was great. You mentioned how this book just kept growing and growing and growing, and you had to tone it down. Where was it growing the most? Was it just character backstories, or was the mystery sprawling? How how did that kind of unfold? Oh god! <laughs> so like I this was I had written other novels before, but this was the one where I sat down and I was like, I really want to. I want to, I had learned a lot. Like, you know, I, for some reason when I was growing up, maybe it was different for you, but I always heard writers saying, oh, we don't outline, don't outline, nobody wants an outline. And I, I did that. And like, I had a couple of books that had real, that got really wobbly at the end because you, you know, you spend a lot of effort getting to an ending that you hadn't thought out, like you're going to get in trouble. So I was like, you know what, let me sit down with this book and plot it out really carefully. And, mm. you know, it, it felt a bit like, you know, drilling for oil and you find like a really rich vein right at the surface. Like I didn't have to spend very long on this one. And suddenly just all this material was coming out and I had all these subplots just like coming out my ears. And part of it was, again, like we were saying actually about like this sort of Netflix HBO style of storytelling where like I had several seasons worth of TV all of a sudden because I, I got really invested <clears throat> excuse me, in these characters. And I was like, God, I could just, I could just play with this all day. Like it was like a little sandbox. So the challenge was taking, I think that outline got to be like a hundred something pages. And that that turned into like a 600 page manuscript that I turned into my agent who like 
made it through, but it was pretty rough. He was like, you know, this is, he was like, the last third of this is great, but everything else you need to cut down by like at least 30%. And so then it was just some pattern of like sitting down and like, I had read somewhere that Eudora Welty would like cut her stories into like scraps and like pin them on pieces of paper. And it literally got to the point where I was trying to disentangle this book so much. I was like on the floor of my like apartment, just like slicing out ribbons and like stapling them together and retyping it. It was pretty, it was intense, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I can just see you just, uh, just yeah. Cutting and pasting and like have yarn connecting pieces together. Like a, like yeah, <laughs> like a serial killer movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was intense. Yeah, it was, but it was fun too because then eventually you got to take a lot of the scraps and mm-hmm. you hadn't made it, and you just—it's very purging to just dump them all in the trash and move mm-hmm. on. It was great. Those novels that you had tried before that didn't make the cut for one reason or another were those also exploring, you know, outsiders and queerness and rural Texas, or what were those kind of? What were you exploring prior to this novel? Um, I mean, things have definitely, what's, what's interesting is that I had the town of Bentley in a very different form, sort of just in my hat, because I had written, um, the, one of the, the book that I wrote before this was very, was very queer. Um, and it was about a guy who had come from a small town and it's never really described that it was just, we knew that it was Bentley and he, it, it was sort of the inverse of this story where it was a, a country boy coming into the city and sort of finding his way through there. And it was very, it was very crime heavy. And that was, you know, in a way, like it was useful to have written that book and then put it in a drawer because then you can go back and kind of strip mine it and find like these little nuggets where you're like, Oh, okay. Like the, the peculiar tension of being queer in Texas, like those sorts of the themes were, uh, were in that book. But as far as like this sort of big mystery superstructure, this was definitely the first time I ever wrote something quite this ambitious. Yeah. Sorry. I was just trying to think of, you mentioned how like you had sent us, I'm just jumping completely the 600 page version of Brightlands to your agent. Was your agent in place prior to you sending Brightlands or were you like querying with that 600 page version of this? No, I, I had had him for forever. Um, I was, yeah, I was really lucky. I, um, God, I was like 21 when I had my first major publication. I wrote like um like a memoir essay thing that the Atlantic's website published, and it did very very well. And um, I was able to sort of network and get an agent out of that. And that was a really interesting process to have early success, you know, because like 20, I think it was like 21 or 22, and you know, I had got I got paid like 500 dollars or something, which was just like mad money to me at the time, and like it just was so cool. And, and signing with an agent, you know, that's always a big deal. And I was, I'm very grateful that I got to do it when I was very young, because even though we then tried to sell a book sort of based on that article and it, it fell apart, which is its own sort of lesson of learning like, Oh wow, this is really not fun. It still allowed me to, it, it gave me the confidence to know that as I was working on projects, I had someone to send it to. Yeah, I can imagine that's like a an inverse of how a lot of debut authors are working with the idea of I hope someone will read this, as opposed to you you knew that there would be at least be a writer out there or a reader out there who would eventually read your words. 
Yeah, I mean, I also got very lucky, though, to keep an agent for such a long period of time because it's an industry with a very high washout rate. I mean, so few people last more than two years, you know, as agents. So, you know, I got very, very, very fortunate in that regard. But, um, yeah, I it, it is like I have had now it's weird having the book coming out and like people will like DM you and ask for advice and stuff. And like I try not to give any because I feel like if you're if you're going to be a writer, you're going to, you're writing, like you don't need me to tell you how to do it. You're going to figure out how to do it. But it, the, the one like practical thing is like, you know, God, if you can get an agent first, like get like a really good 40 pages or something that you're proud of and like start networking, especially now that everything's virtual, like good God, try to like network your way into an agent that you really connect with and can talk on the phone with for an hour and have a good time, you know, chatting with. Cause that will be far more invaluable and potentially a much better use of your time than slaving away on a book that you don't have any, it having someone who you can ask questions of who at least understands what the market is doing. That can be really helpful. Like not that you need to build your book on committee, but to know like, you know, going into it, like, Hey, I have this idea. I have, I have a hundred percent had times when I'm like, Hey, I have this idea. And my agent's like, Oh, well, William Morrow is actually publishing that next month it's like well shit okay it's useful to have those sorts of things in a way that when you're i think there's a very dangerous trap that a lot of writers fall into where they think that if they just read it it will sell and it's very much not the case the market is very tough and you have to be very careful and very deliberate with what you write Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that's also a good thing to think about is just at the end of the day like we talked about this at the beginning about like summer books sell right publishing mm. as, as much as a bit as literature is an art form but publishing is a business a hundred percent hundred percent yes yeah when, when like just looking forward to to your career you know this is a debut book but like you said you've been published you had an agent where, where do you where do you see yourself exploring are there more novels do you want to write more nonfiction? what what where, where do you see you, you focusing in the next few years? Oh, God. I gave up nonfiction a long time ago. Like, I was trying to, like, write a nonfiction book, and that didn't sell, which for a lot of reasons, that part of it is just I was too young. Um, but then, you know, I was playing with these sort of personalized, deeply felt essays of, like, personal experience. And, I mean, I realized that you only really get two or three good stories in your life, like, every three or four years, you know what I mean? So it's very hard to sustain a career spinning out anecdotes, you know, and I knew I wasn't David Sedaris. I knew I wasn't funny that way. So to do richly felt complicated stories based on reality wasn't going to happen. And then it was like a one-two punch where uh, Anna Wiener published uh, Uncanny Valley and I think it was N plus one. And then, um, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, Oh, God, got it. You're going to have to edit this out. Um, Stephanie Land. Steph- Stephanie Land wrote uh, Made, which did it. I think it was in Vox. And those two stories came out. In my head, they come out right next to each other. I know they were separated by a period of time, but like they were really a one-two punch to make me just stop writing nonfiction. So I was like, I do not have the life experience or really the critical faculty to break down my life and, and do something half as affecting and half as necessary as what they did with that with those two stories so 
it really was just the end of fic- uh, nonfiction for me. No, um, I'm I'm hard at work on a, a new novel. It should be done actually pretty soon. Like I'm definitely the the uh, speaking of publishing as a business, the only way to sustain a comfortable income at this job is to publish a book every year or two. You know what I mean? So it's it's very much something for me where I'm just you know I'm just so excited like you you have to go into an, like writing a new novel very humbly and very sort of you're learning each book anew but it's a very it's a very fun process uh so i i you know not what i don't see myself stopping anytime soon mm-hmm. is that i don't want to talk too much about the next book because that's it's not something i like to do because i don't want to jinx anything for everyone um but is that also in the suspense thriller vein or is it something completely different Oh, no, this is totally in the same vein. I mean, what was interesting with the Brightlands is, you know, originally the Brightlands was just sort of like a, like a secular mystery. It didn't have any supernatural stuff going on. And it, it was it something, and I, I found it very, very nice to be able to, uh, I found it very cool to be able to, like, reimagine it with the supernatural thread running through it. And so once I did that, because there were already these weird images and symbols and all the different character stories that I realized I could actually cohere into something. So once that happened, I was like, I felt like I had just, you know, struck gold, at least for myself, where I was like, oh, I really love how the supernatural fiction, you can go really deep and complicated and explore. You can allow your metaphor to take on, like, give your metaphor some teeth, you know what I mean? And really go deep into something uh, in a way that I found crime fiction is, is more than capable of doing. But for me, the next couple of books, I suspect will kind of be playing with that balance of like, is it more horror? Is it more suspense, you know, crime novel. And then like, so like, with this idea of like writing about crime in general, I know that it might not be necessarily about crime in the way that maybe people are thinking, but like with everything going on now do you feel writing about crime and mysteries slightly differently or is is your are your books so removed from kind of reality that you don't think about the procedural cop i guess is what i'm trying to get at oh no i mean i wrote a really scathing op-ed for the new york times about this actually i'm really Mm -hmm. sick of of white writers pretending like that doesn't matter um Mm -hmm. No, I think that I think that we need to be very carefully considering the role of police in fiction, um, and that it says a great deal about white writers and white readers and our privilege that we can look at a cop breaking the law and not be struck with horror by it because it's for the common good or for they're doing something that's just, just so alien from our own personal experience that we believe it as being necessary and good, when in reality the police and at least in this country are, I mean, the first cops were slave catchers, man. Like it's a really, it's a very flawed industry. It's a very flawed system. So no, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. Uh, I, I think for me, like I, I never imagined myself writing a procedural in the style of um, like a, like a Michael Connelly or something. You know, I never saw that really as like the one ongoing cop and like the, the corruption and the fat. And to be fair, like a lot of crime fiction they're not like bootlickers. Like there's very few major writers of crime fiction who I think are just, you know, grotesquely in love with the, like the state or whatever. But it is something where I'm, I'm very tired of, 
I'm just tired of people not acknowledging how, how messed up the police are in fiction. So that's, it, it was funny writing the Brightlands, I actually was not nearly so articulate about this at the time. Like I hadn't really researched it, but even then I was always just like leery of putting a cop as a main character. Cause I was like, you know, historically speaking, cops have not been the friend of gays and they've not been the friend of women or to black people or all these characters who are, you know, fighting for some justice in this book. So you know, but it's a book about corruption. So I knew that I could I could explore that in an interesting way. But no, I think all my books are are hopefully interrogating power to some degree. Uh, and yeah, I, if I ever wrote a, a cop novel, it would be a very it would be a rough book because it, it's it's a genre that's really due for a reckoning. And thankfully, it's, it's getting one. It's not just because of me. There's a lot of conversations going on. Yeah, and I just that is a conversation happening. Yeah, I, I just saw that. Um, just speaking of media, not just necessarily the publishing world, that Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is a sitcom about cops, like just scrapped their entire season and are going to go back to the writer's room to recalibrate. I think, like, yeah. Because, like, the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and countless others, I, I feel like the media is finally going to reckon with the fact that they had a hand in building this cop world where we're in love society is supposed to be in love with cops right well it's interesting because i mean there's been a lot of research into this the cops in media are very often they are shown like using their service weapons far more often than they actually do they're shown you know taking some pretty basic constitutional violations to like you know find a girl wrapped in like a freezer or something and like they're Mm -hmm. they're doing all of these things and yeah it, it inures you I remember when I was much younger, you know, you would hear stories of, of black people being harmed by the police. And yeah, your innate thought comes out of law and order where you think, well, they probably had it coming. Like they probably did something to deserve it. And like, yeah, I mean, I am very happy to see that like live PD and cops, I believe, have been canceled or put on hiatus. Like a lot of these shows are being frozen, but, you know, it's it's a weird time. I'm not sure how soon we're going to see change because from a purely business perspective, something, some huge percentage of primetime TV right now, like the money makers are cop shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's going to be a while, but I'm, I'm grateful that people are approaching this more dubiously now. Mm-hmm. Are there just kind of wrapping up and, and going into, I always like to end on book recommendations, but are there books specifically in like the crime genre that you feel have done it right in the past that you can think of off the top of your head? Well, you know, I, I recommended this book the other day and I, I still adore it. Um, Walter Mosley wrote a novel called down the river Unto the sea. Um, it's about a, um, he's a black cop who basically it's this question of like, was he framed or did he actually commit a crime that got him pushed off the NYPD? And now he's a private investigator, sort of moving through a very tattered life. And it, it what's interesting about that book is it it takes all the, the needs of a of a classic gumshoe noir novel of you know a man kind of down on his luck and he's even got like the office and the the girl walks in with trouble. Like it takes these very basic concepts and by by centering it not just on blackness but the way black men relate to power in America. And the way that um, we're all complicit in this machine that's harming others to benefit us, 
it, it does some really brilliant stuff. So that would be very high on my list. Uh, Down the River Under the Sea is, I think, the best like detective story I've read in probably five or ten years. And then opening up book recommendations to just what is currently interesting you, what what's on your to-be-read list, what books are out there that, that you either have read recently or can't wait to sink your teeth into? Um. Oh, wow. Well, there's this book called The Bright One that comes out. I'm kidding. Um, it's... Uh, God, I'm reading right now. Uh, actually, it was funny. Like I've, I've been rereading a lot of those Barbara Vine novels um, just for several reasons, but the, the craft in them is really excellent. She wrote a book called The Brimstone Wedding that I think is like, it's basically like if Remains of the Day were suspenseful. You know, it's like this, this woman is uh, a caretaker at, a, at an old folks home and she meets this uh, woman named Stella who's you know, very clear-headed and very elegant and very much still dresses like a, like a creature almost out of the past. And, and Jenny, the main character, is going through um, an affair. She's having an affair. Uh, we know this very much from the start. And pretty soon she confesses that to Stella. And then Stella starts to tell her a story of an affair that she had like 20-odd years ago, back at the end of the 60s. And what's really fascinating is the way that, you know, Vine is, very much always about the way that the past change and doesn't change or like politics change, but people don't really. And so you can, you know, there's this really gorgeous uh, Baudelaire quote where it's basically like the shape of the city changes faster than the human heart, right? Like the cities and the towns and the, the society we're in can change, but the actual like forces driving people are often very slow to change if they ever do. So the brimstone wedding just does some really, really profoundly moving stuff in the last 70 pages where Jenny's affair comes to a head at the same time that Stella's remembrance of her affair comes to a head. And it's, it's, it's one of the best written things you'll, you'll ever see. I think I'm gonna have to go back and, and get that book. It's from like the mid nineties, right? It's, it's, it's a little older. It is. Okay. Yeah. Um, Rendell did, she had this like golden age of like her first fine book, I think was the eighties, but the golden age is definitely the nineties because there's just, there's some books also that are really shockingly queer. Like you go back and read them and they're really, they're super gay. They're super like coherent. They have such a deep understanding of male desire and, and male like vanity and need. And the Brimstone Wedding has only sort of a tracing mention of, of queerness, but this sensibility of, of a happiness that will never be acceptable, either because you're having an affair or because of economic pressures it's a very you can read the closet in a lot of it the sense of sort of a, a restrained happiness uh and then yeah i really want to read uh byron lane has a book coming out called a stars board that looks really great because i've been reading a lot of really heavy thrillers and it 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 looks really sweet and really moving he was um carrie fisher's uh personal assistant and even though the it's about a young man who's a personal assistant to sort of an aging starlet. And she's very much not Carrie Fisher, but from what I've read of the book, it's just hilarious and, and sweet. And I love it. It's also just a great and title. That's a plus. <laughs> a star. Oh, star is bored. It's yeah. so good. I saw it and I was just like, mother, I, I would have, you like, you kicked yourself that you didn't listen to it first. And then um, probably the, the thriller I'm going to read after that is, uh, Wendy Walker, who I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I know it's supposed to be amazing. She has a book coming out called Don't Look For Me. And I just got the arc for that. And it looks like a really, a friend of mine who reads a ton of suspense tells me that it, it starts off looking like a 
white girl with secrets mystery, like a sort of derivative girl on the train, but then it morphs into something entirely more horrific. And like, I mean, we love it. We love horrific. So mm. we'll, we'll be there for that. That is something. See, and, and this is why like, I, your book is something that, that really stood out to me. It's not a book that I, I wouldn't have s- sought it out necessarily, I guess is what I'm saying. Like I don't read thrillers mm-hmm. as, or mm-hmm. I don't read things that are labeled as thrillers as much as I should, because now I'm realizing the thriller suspense genre has become something entirely different. But these books that you're recommending are just like books I hadn't not heard of. And I've heard of a lot of books. Like that's kind of what I spent all my day doing. And these books that you're you're recommending right. are just, they're going to be added to my to-be-read list immediately. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. no, I mean, that's my main, the one thing that does give me some degree of pleasure is that we are seeing, you know, sort of steadily drip by drip, there is this slow erosion of the barrier that was sort of holding popular fiction at bay. And I think part of that is is simply economic forces. Like the publishing industry can't really afford to be snobbish and not many writers can afford to be snobbish anymore either. You know what I mean? We're living in a place where you're not necessarily, I don't think that we're competing with, with screened media. I don't think we're competing with you know, TV and film and the way that we're trying to exist alongside it and maybe fulfill a need that those don't offer. But you also, you know, you need to be, you need to be entertaining. You need to know how to keep a reader engaged because yeah, people are trained now to expect a binge. When we sit down to a piece of entertainment, we want to get sucked away by it. And, you know, I think that what's really exciting is a lot of like, you know, quote unquote, like serious authors are dabbling more in, in events. Like people are learning so much and, it's nothing new. I mean, Alice Munro, if you go back and you read her stories, they're all suspense novels. Like almost all of them key off of an act of violence or a secret or a shocking reversal. But she got away with it because she's, you know, a genius and everybody was just so distracted by like how smart she was, which is not anything to scoff at. She's amazing. But I'm really excited to see the way that publishing, um, publishing's always been about making money. What I'm grateful to see is the literary folks sort of coming to, you know, sort of join the party, so to speak, you know, because there's so many really brilliant, smart people, but there's only like one Rachel Cusk, you know what I mean? There's only really like one hyper genius person who's going to come around every 15 or 20 years. And I'm really hoping more, as I say that, I'm really hoping we're also seeing the end of the grand luminary model of publishing, where it was like, who are you in relation to Philip Roth? Like, I'm grateful that that sort of old, that era of Titans is sort of falling away. And I hope something a bit more, um, you know, democratic emerges of just more diverse voices and more complicated voices dabbling in different genres. It's an exciting time. It really is. Yeah. As someone who spent the last year and a half, like since I've been doing Day Beautiful, exclusively looking for emerging writers and, and new names, it seems, and I'm not an expert, but it seems like there's more risks and chances being taken which can only be a good thing. It is. And well, from what I've also seen, this is altered hand, but like the, the process is shifting. I mean, like a lot of what's exciting is that diverse stories are being bought. And so that's allowing publishers, not nearly fast enough, but publishers are investing money in marketing into, yeah, diverse readers and also just, you know, bolder stories. Like I'm, I never in a million years thought that the Brightlands would find would be like, a big summer release because it's so weird and so queer. So the fact that that's happening, 
Obviously, it makes me happy for personal reasons, but it also makes me super excited to see what the rest of the year is going to bring us. Yeah, especially because, like you said, Gone Girl opened up the floodgates for a certain type, and who's to say Brightlands doesn't do that? A certain type of book that publishers are seeking now, you know? Well, I mean, <laughs> so like I'm, I'm ready for those Gillian Flynn checks. Baby. I gotta tell you. She's doing okay. Yeah, well, I hope you get the Flynn checks. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and just letting me go down weird turns and twists in this conversation. Thank you to John for coming on the podcast today to talk about the Brightlands. You can find him on the web at johnfram.com or on Twitter at John S. Fram is his handle. And that article he referenced about writing about police in the media, I will link in the show notes. A very special thank you to my friend Raquel, who is letting me use music from her brand new music project, Rocky Collin. Please check out her music at rockycollin.com. As always, you can find me at daybeautiful.net. All of the social media is at daybeautiful. Please subscribe to the podcast and keep checking out the website for more interviews and book recommendations. I hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time, I'm Adam, this is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. Beautiful.